All right. Uh, this is the podcast Finchley Place. I'm Crispy Chicken and... I'm Suspended Reason. And today we're going to talk about uh, commitments, just the idea of when you commit yourself to things and some of the subtleties um, within that in terms of strategic interaction, social technology, social games. Uh, I have some thoughts, but as usual, I'll uh, leave it open if you want to start Suspended. Mm, well, we kind of had, had talked about possible... Uh, kinds of commitments. I don't know, we could kind of just try and give a list of all the kinds of commitments and, and maybe try and talk about whether all the things that we call commitments in everyday language uh, are the thing that we want to talk about today, or maybe narrow that down and then talk about that one kind of commitment or the varieties, but maybe that's a place to start. Definitely. Um, should we just throw out commitments then? So I guess one kind of commitment that I was just mentioning before this start is um, like what I would call a bundled commitment, which is when you make a uh, explicit commitment. So I say, you know, you're going to lend me, I don't know, your guitar. And I make a commitment to return it to you. But since I can't control the nature of reality, I'm also committing to replacing it um, if it, it breaks. And of course, people get into conflict like this where they're like, oh, I can't possibly replace this. I don't have the money. And anyway, we couldn't have known that it would break. And so that was part of the risk you're taking. And there's kind of this mm -hmm. implicit underlying game of how an implicit commitment and what, an, what implicit commitment is being bundled with an explicit commitment. Yeah. Well, so my dad was, um, sorry, I'm a little loud. I don't know why. I'll step away from the mic a bit. My dad um, at a, gosh, probably one of my high school swimmates, uh, almost probably a decade ago uh you know some was talking to other some parent of another swimmer on the team and uh the parent was you know maybe a vp at some kind of big technology company or something um kind of a hot shot for a small town and he had brought like a new some kind of gopro equipment or something that he was being allowed to use it was like in beta you know this was like a prototype that had been given to him by the engineering team it was worth thousands of dollars right and so he brings it to the pool and he and my dad are chatting about it and he's like it's so cool try it out and he hands it to my dad and in the handover it gets fumbled and dropped you know onto the ground and breaks <laughs> um, and so there's like i and you know i think it was more like on my dad's side but it's just one of those weird things where um they're just it's not clear what the responsibility is at that point um people have different capacities for replacing things um I mean, in that, that kind of situation, it seems like the only thing that can turn out is the VP just takes responsibility for that. But, um, but yeah, definitely, there's, there's a weird landscape of, of what you owe and uh, what you're committed to. Agreed. And I think this is actually one place where power dynamics come up a lot, because I think there's a few things. So one, people tend to side with underdogs as a general thing under kind of, you, we can make a lot of explanations for why. I would say one of the reasons I view as fundamental is because it's viewed that the person, you know, the overdog can take the fallout more easily, which is actually, I think, not always true, but that's the general assumption. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other reason though, or not the other reason, but really the other phenomenon that, that goes counter to this is if people people close to the situation, even if they will like sympathize with the underdog, often won't side with the underdog in the event of a conflict um, because they don't have the power to stand out and they're afraid of retaliation from the overdog. And so I think there are kind of the, the, there's a competing tension there. Um, and I think that's actually where 
the culture of a place, whether, you know, you're going to get fired for a mistake actually does vary a lot f- across companies, across um, cultures, um, because there's this question of whether underdog sympathy um, it, or overdog kind of like ability to actually manage the situation and decide things, um, which of those is stronger. And even if the overdog has the ability to decide things, they still usually have the power to decide where the fallout comes. So often mm-hmm. there are definitely a lot of organizations, like this is kind of the good old classic idea, ideal of, well, the overdog has the ability to fire you, but if they're a really good person, they're going to take responsibility for it, right? Like that's a kind of classic, you know, sensibility, at least in the West. And there are actually examples of this in other cultures, but it's an obvious kind of stereotype in the West, especially in kind of like older um older america like say post-war immediately post-world war ii america this was kind of viewed as a classic like i bear the responsibility for things even though i have the power you know even though i'm a big business boss and i have the power to um, make decisions yeah i think that's right um i think you know i understand there being at least kind of two like big um hierarchical like directional norms in military and business stuff um at least like more traditional business obviously norms are changing but um And I think one right is that you always take the fall for the mistakes of the people below you. And this happens at every level. So a captain, you know, takes the fall for the mistake of the men under him. And then, you know, the commanding officer above him takes the fall. And there's this kind of um, if, if, you know, you're the good and honorable uh, commander, obviously people try and, you know, weasel their way around this or blame things on other people, but there is some expectation. And then at the same time, there's an expectation that um, you only complain up. So the grunts complain to the captain and the captain complains to the colonel, but the captain will never complain about the colonel to the grunts. And the colonel will never complain to the captain about, you know, the general or the Pentagon. Um, I, I want to dig into what you mean by bundled um, mm. obligations or commitments, because it seems to me like you could also conceptualize that commitment as a very simple or maybe unbundled one. Maybe I'm misunderstanding what you mean by bundled, but um, so you could say that the commitment you take on when you borrow something is that you will return it in the condition it is in. And that all kind of sub obligations, like do you have to buy a new one if you break it? Or do you have to like fix it if it falls apart? Or do you have to make sure that you keep it instead of losing it? All those kind of essentially fall under some larger imperative. So I agree with that as like a first level idealization and i think just that once you start getting into the messy world there are ways in which this clearly isn't true and i would say this becomes a kind of um a bundling thing so here's an example i think a lot of people for very cheap things which would actually be pretty easy to replace don't replace them if they lose them under the notion that it's not that much lost value Mm -hmm. um and so what what's going on there to me is that, well, this is a case where the original commitment was so weak, you couldn't bundle. You couldn't bundle this like actual idea of replacement under um, under destruction, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, you know, in some sense, you could view this as an exception to the theory that you were putting forth, but I've kind of cut it up a little bit differently because that's what I see is happening. I think also what I gave in reality is like what you're pointing out is really true. And I think I gave a bad example where it's kind of on the edge. Um, let me give an, a slightly more controversial example. Um, I tried to think of non-controversial examples. So I wanted to start with that, but this is something actually I think is very exposed because it's changing in culture right now, which is the idea that in, you know, uh, classical stereotypical heterosexual relationships, um, you know, on a first date, the man is going to pay for dinner. Um, and that by asking someone out on a date, you're basically agreeing to that. 
Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's an example where you can no longer make this argument about sub-obligations because there is this cultural coordination handshake that's going on and not everybody sees it the same way. Um, and I think that's especially true in 2021 where... I think there's actually things happening both ways. There's definitely, um, you know, an egalitarian movement. There's definitely also a kind of like men are trash movement that actually pushes to go back to that norm under some kind of idea of like reparation kind of ish thing for, you know, gender discrimination in the past. And like it's the idea of atonement. And there's also, I think, at the same time, in the same direction, for totally opposite reasons, a trad movement. Uh, well, you know, there actually are uses to gender roles, and they are useful for coordinating society, and we should do that. And I think people try to signal hard um, who they are to other people, both for compatibility, but also for like literal ease of of dealing with these handshakes, because it is a really complicated handshake. And if it's awkward to figure this out, that can be a total date killer. Hmm. Yeah. Well, does it change things if I feel like that's not the norm? That the norm is actually whoever asks the person out has to pay, and that's irrespective of gender. But because initiation of dates is strongly gendered, then there's this kind of waterfall into paying being gendered. And I know that in the past this wasn't necessarily true. Maybe in the fifties. You could be a girl and kind of like ask the boy out to a city Hawkins dance and he still pays for everything. But I sort of feel like at this point, if you do the initiation to a dinner, there is an expectation that you pay. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, I don't think there is any wrong. I don't think there's any wrong or right here. It's the first thing that I'll say, because I just think that there are a lot of views on this. Um, And one thing that I've heard uh, from a lot of my uh, female friends is that they will um, like often letting the other person pay is a sign of growing intimacy, right? That like if they're really hitting it off and the other person offers, then it's kind of like, you know, it's exactly like with your friends. I mean, obviously a romantic thing, but I don't think it's any different from with your friends with uh, people I really want to get to know better. I really try to push to pay because that's just somewhere I show else. You know, I say you'll pay next time because I want to try to continue this entire thing. Right. And I think, you know, it's you exactly like to a commitment. I mean, exactly. as soon as they accept the money. Precisely. Right, yeah. Um, you, don't, you don't want to accept money from somebody if um, you, you know, aren't sure it's going well. And oftentimes I think, I have, you know, I'm obviously a lot of my cultural knowledge here is more from movies and, and gossip, but it does seem like that is one tactic that women use. If, if they're not feeling it, they will just pay for their own portion or the full dinner. And that to them is like, I don't owe you anything. You didn't take me out and I don't owe you a second date. I don't owe you, you know, coming back to your house for drinks after, et cetera. Which I think is a super interesting thing because you see exactly how, you know, by asking someone on a date, you enter in a commitment, but that that commitment can be broken in order to break a chain of commitments, which is exactly the kind of thing I mean by bundling, right? That there is this kind of like process by which you're engaging in certain behavior and just by engaging in it even though it's kind of part of this other handshake you have to deal with you enter into automatic commitments forward Mm -hmm. um and and that's kind of what i mean by bundling that like Mm -hmm. just by engaging in the normal behavior of something else even maybe it's a commitment you basically start chaining these commitments into other things because of the assumed cultural ceremony and that obviously this breaks down under places where culture isn't super stable right where there are multiple subcultures or different like you know there's a lot of variance on one aspect of a culture uh when we talked a couple of weeks ago briefly about commitments uh not on this cast but over chat 
we talked about implicit versus explicit. Yeah. And it seems like this kind of bundling is, is sort of gesturing at the same thing as like the way that we're in, we get implicitly committed by, um, you know, normal actions. Though, I guess, I mean, maybe we can see if this, I'm not totally clear on what falls under the purview of bundling or not bundling. So maybe we can throw an example at it. The kind of um, situation where, let's say, um, hmm, you know, I, I'm going to the beach and you ask me where I'm headed and I tell you that I'm headed to the beach and you say, uh, oh, that sounds great. Maybe I'll stop by later at some point. I, I've been meaning to go for a swim anyways. And at that point, totally. kind of, there's, we haven't explicitly coordinated. There's been no real agreement that I'll be there. Well, you'll be there, but there is some expectation. And I think I can break it reasonably, but I at least need to uh, provide an explanation. So if the next day we run into each other again and you say, hey, I stopped by the beach in the afternoon, like I said, and you weren't there. I didn't see you. Uh, I could say something like, oh, yeah, I had to head in early for blah, 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 blah. Like, but there has to but be you have to invent an excuse. Yeah. Exactly. Right. No, absolutely. I think that's a great example. So just so you know how I'm thinking about this, which, you know, is just me spitballing. I'm not sure this is robust, is I think of a bundling as an implicit commitment you enter while making an explicit commitment to something else. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that happens a lot, which is why I think there's, there's a word that's worth happening where like we have an explicit commitment. Like it's the idea in many ways, uh, we've talked about, you know, of surrogation of, of the idea that there's a spirit to the letter, right? Like I mm -hmm. describe some kind of formal arrangement, but in addition to that formal arrangement, I didn't encode everything. So I'm actually, you know, really trying to encode this implicit commitment. And that, in my view, is often ruled by cultural ceremony. So I think in this case, right, it's the, the cultural ceremonies have to do with how people spend leisure time, how long I can expect you to be at the beach, how long I can expect myself to be doing something else. Like, how are you going to arrange your day? You can see that in a world where people never had to sleep and, you know, like we would uh, be at places for 20 hours at a time, this kind of thing would get a lot funnier. And maybe people wouldn't care as much about actually making it work. And they'd say, oh, I didn't see you, whatever. But definitely I've had a lot of people break norms like this. So like I had a, um, in uh, college, I was friends with a lot of international students and they would have a completely different set of norms about being on time, not just from Americans, but from each other. And there were so many issues of, there would just, you know, be one person who was always late to stuff. And that's just how he thought of like, well, if you tell me to be at a party, it's like the party starts at seven, I'm coming at 830. Um, <laughs> and like, what are you supposed to do? Um, and mm -hmm. that actually, so that made people very military about like, this is really when we're going to be there. But a lot of people weren't down for those kind of military commitments. And so it like it uh, self-selected the kind of people who would end up in that friend group, which was usually a little bit more um uh diverse but often didn't include people who had a different tenant sense of time uh so i think it's like it's kind of this interesting grouping phenomena and i actually i think that that grouping is just a microcosm of how these cultural things evolve where you know people under certain conditions develop cultural ceremonies that make sense for their condition you know like i don't even know exactly what but I'm sure that people who worked in factories, you know, had certain cultural elements. Actually, I know one, right? That's how like the trend in the 20s for short hair started because um, factory women often wanted short hair so it wouldn't get, you know, stuck in machines and things. And it kind of became trendy um, in, a, in the way that a lot of things that, you know, start off from uh, the upper class kind of takes from the takes from lower classes and says, oh, this is now my cutesy thing.
Yeah. Same with jeans, actually, I guess. Yeah. I, um... I'm just going to throw this really, really quickly out. This is a, a very silly anecdote. And then I want to explain, because I feel like we should give context for anyone uh, who happens at a bizarre chance and coincidence to be listening to this, um, a little bit of context about why we're talking about commitments or why the kind of like beach example of a commitment or the dating example of a commitment matter, which is the kind of mutual future modeling stuff. So one, the kind of quirky anecdote from, uh, it comes from probably like third grade. Um, and, uh, you know, just one of those regular kind of school kids engaging in, in class warfare, uh, or rather popularity contests and kind of shifting cliques and gangs. And I think my mom said something that, that stuck with me, like, um, you know, if you go off and you do your own thing and it looks fun and you have at least one other two other people who are, you know, seem to be enjoying themselves with you, there's a lot of power in that. Um, and I, I th I've been thinking about that with respect to the lower classes doing their own thing and why the kind of lower class cultural irrelevance and disregard for upper class norms actually ends up getting emulated by the upper classes and not necessarily as much vice versa. Obviously there's a striving middle class, but there are whole swaths of the lower class that are completely uninterested in emulating higher classes and instead end up getting emulated themselves. And I think there's an interesting lesson in that. Uh, what I'll say really quick about the mutual, mutual future modeling stuff is just that, uh, you know, as we talked about in kind of earlier episodes, it seems like a lot of the work humans are up to is about predicting each other and really predicting the environment. But since we live in a very social environment, a lot of the kind of big moving variables in our world have to do with other people. And if you're trying to optimize your own life, trying to make the right preparations and anticipations and plans and, you know, have your strategy be the optimal one, uh, obviously you want a lot of data about what's going to happen and be able to make good predictions. And so obviously, you know, a case like the beach scenario or the dating scenario is one in which our futures are in some way tied up, you know, I'll have more fun at the beach if um, you're there as well, or I'll make a point to go out of my way if you're already there because it'll be fun. But if I go and you're not there, now I just wasted my time. And so obviously a good prediction is preferable. Um, that's the, then the final really quick thing I'll say, I was struck by, uh, I've been watching Gossip Girl the last couple of weeks and had a little throwback to high school when they have this kind of, I think Dan and Serena have this define the relationship moment and they literally use that phrase, you know, DTR, um, which I feel like is something that people texted about in like middle school and high school. They'd be like, have you DTR'd? Um, and it's such a crazy thing, but it strikes me that a lot of what DTRing is, is about defining the contractual obligations that you owe each other. And so not DTRing is about, well, I have plausible deniability if I go and decide to go on a date with another person or I sleep around or whatever, I can always say, look, we didn't define the relationship. We were open. There was no promise of monogamy. But if I DTR, now I'm culpable and I'm socially culpable. And, and that becomes a problem. No, that's a totally good point. I actually, so in late or maybe mid-high school, I just binge and watch all of Gossip Girl. Um, or all the, I, think, I don't think it was quite done yet, but it was almost done, I think, at that point. And I... Uh, that's actually something I want to return to. You make me want to return to that because I, I feel like, I don't know, I can understand it's obviously very soap opera and, it's, and I think a lot of people say it's shallow. I actually would disagree with them. And I, I think 
it caught it made almost bare in in such a like explicit almost tacky way uh like the actual um strategic interaction sections of people's realities and mm-hmm. i feel like one of the reasons it was off-putting to a lot of people was because it didn't have a lot of the fluff that makes people more real and feel less manipulative but in some sense that's the genius of the entire show and i think it gets a lot right in that sense no i think that's so right i think um i think gossip girl is written by very smart people um i mean i i read an interesting um i think it was a transcript of emails between carl wilson not of the beach boys but um the culture writer who wrote uh let's talk about love which is a pierre bordeaux uh distinction inspired essay on celine dion and um, I think it's actually maybe a 33 and a third book, if I remember correctly. But he was emailing with Pelly and they were talking about Gossip Girl. And uh, I think Carl Wilson was talking just about how smart and credentialed the writers in that room are. I don't know how he knew them or, um, but there's kind of this impression that dumb television gets written by dumb people. And it seemed like uh, he felt strongly this was not the case. And I think there are those depths in Gossip Girl. Like um, there are so many um, very Jane Austen-like dynamics in terms of like strategic partners. I mean, if you think about why Chuck and Blair make sense together, and obviously the writers do think they make sense together, um, it's because they really are quintessentially strategic partners in the Jane Austen sense of being perfectly matched in terms of what they want and their kind of ambition, um, and also their kind of what they're willing to do to get it, and also their intelligence, their their kind of competence in executing it, and they're well matched in wealth. So in basically every way that they can be aligned in what they want and their ability to get it, they are aligned. And this like totally contrasts with something like uh, like Blair and Nate, where Nate like is trying to figure out whether he even wants this inheritance, whether he even wants the money, whether he, exactly. this life is for him. He's kind of has this soft spot. He doesn't he can't really be brutal or vicious like Blair and Chuck can. Um, and they're just so obviously not well suited for each other. This there's so much there, um, and I, and I know we have other things to discuss, but let me let me say one quick thing, um, which is that I think that you know the soft spot of Nate is a really actually key point in that there's always this question when we talk about strategic interactions it's come up before and it'll come up again of why aren't people more Machiavellian then? And I think the reality is they have real preferences and real abilities that they can't necessarily change, or at least that are mm. very costly to change, mm. and that somehow is just never factored in properly when people are being very brief about their argument, but in every real situation, every real situation is very detailed. And that's part of the details that often, you know, they don't come up as much if in, you know, like uh, international relations because the interfaces of, of countries are essentially more limited than the interfaces between people. Um, but I think in, you know, the microeconomics of these strategic interactions, it really matters. Um, and uh, if you will allow me to go on a rant for a mm-hmm. moment, um, I think that's something that I really respect about um, the vision given in uh, in Gossip Girl about uh, Blair and Chuck, which you know is not entirely endorsed, but I think it's shown as a as a clear possibility. That I think there is this view, especially in American culture, about um, love being something that is uh, inherent and like you just have to find it. It's a completely a discovery and in some sense not built. The relationship is built. The love is there and it has to just you have to just find it. It's some unknowable quantity. And I feel like um, this comes from the romanticization of the indefinable, much like the in, the illegible, right? In like the, the post-rationalist group and things like that. 
which I think a little bit misses the point that the indefinables, while totally in existence, and I, I don't want to deny that they they have um, pull, are often not you know as important or at least um, on the same level as importance over just actually planning and figuring out what you want with someone, which in my view is actually what people are trying to do, but they're trying to be a little bit self-deceptive about how they're trying to um, get what they want because we also want to cooperate. And a lot of cooperation principles depend on not being so clear. And so I think this lack of clarity and the lack of cultural norms as the way communication has changed have made it much harder to believe in essentially strategic partnerships and has, has pinned them down as essentially unromantic. Even though I feel like yeah. if you go back and look at, you know, romances from when romances were beginning to be, strategic strategic interaction is actually all over all of them and is an inherent part. It's not viewed as some terrible thing. Totally. I mean, I almost wonder if there's some, this I don't think would be fair to call it surrogation, but there's some kind of similar reification happening, I think, where like I could imagine a situation where true romance is romance that is strategically illogical and strategically so like there's this costly signaling thing almost where like the love is so illogical and doesn't make sense and that is why it's so strong and so definitionally i mean if if kind of if you're looking at like a good marriage as two parts one of the parts is like how much sense it makes on uh kind of logically in terms of like do these people work well together will they help each other achieve their goals and then on the other hand there's this um, like kind of felt attraction and emotion. And if you're a romantic, you place your premium on the latter and true love is going to be anything in which, I mean, obviously kind of a match is built on the ratio of these two. And so if there's none of the kind of logical compatibility, that means there must be so much um, emotional <laughs> attraction. And, and that's probably, I don't know, it feels like that's part of where that comes from. No, I think that's a, a beautiful point. And I think this is one of the places where because we're exposed to so many different, um, basically media, and because media tends to report on uniqueness, I think people are stunned by very, very illogical loves that they know about, or at least are reported as very illogical loves. And then that becomes a desirable object that people try to emulate, even if they can't make it work, and then are trying to convince themselves that they're in that situation. And in order to convince yourself you're in that situation, uh, you have to convince yourself that it's at least illogical, right? And so I think that actually creates a lot of, like, very weird mood swinging relationships of people almost trying to make it make less sense because that's what love is. Yeah. Here, I think, I mean, we should probably quit the, quit the gossip girl and just quit do a dedicated love. episode at some point. Uh, okay. But I want to really quickly, I, I mean, I, you should, you should rewatch. Maybe we could do just on the first season because um, yeah. it's pretty fun television and Jacob Clifton, who recaps it, um, had some unbelievable recaps. And I'll just read you a really quick uh, passage here from. So this is the episode in which um, you might remember it. So Blair finally gets picked by her mother, who is a big fashion designer, to be the model for a big kind of like either some cover story or, you know, to be some kind of lead gal um, on their new brand for a bid with like another major company. Um, and so she gets picked by her mother, who, of course, she has major mommy issues. Her mom, you know, you know, shames her for eating croissants and nags her about her weight and stuff. Um, and so she finally gets picked and she goes and she does a day of shooting and her friend Serena shows up. And at some point, Blair's kind of being too stiff during the photo shoot. And 
Serena kind of goes over to her because she notices that one, that Blair's being stiff, and two, the photographers and the photo directors are talking about how stiff she looks, that mm-hmm. she might, you know, n- no longer be eligible as the model because she's so bad at modeling. And so Serena tries to, you know, be a good friend and loosen her up. And of course, this is like a delicate negotiation, right? Because Blair's been picked for something. So Blair's kind of the chosen one. And Serena comes over and now is trying to tell her essentially that actually you're you're blowing it and you need my help. Um, and there's this whole kind of fight. And eventually, actually, what happens is um, Blair gets unpicked. And, um, and, and Blair's mom ends up uh, inviting Serena, essentially, or tricking Serena into doing the modeling for Blair. And Blair shows up at this kind of covert shoot. Serena thinks that it's like her and Blair are going to be doing it together. Maybe this is a bit of motivated ignorance, and she really just wants the, the limelight. But uh, Jacob Clifton says, it's pretty amazing. He says, right, it's awesome because this is the whole dynamic. This is when, you know, Blair has basically blown up at Serena for stealing her modeling position. Um, Clifton writes, it's awesome because this is the whole dynamic. Blair instinctively knows correctly that she deserves to be loved, which makes it so confusing that Serena's it factor makes everybody give her stuff instead. We came into the relationship at a weird time but it's their entire friendship trying to hold on to each other in a constant onslaught of this narrative unfairness. A friend emailed me before this episode, like, why do you care about this show? Why do you care if Serena and Blair work it out? And I was all because Serena will always get the thing and Blair will always lose the thing and they will try to love each other anyways. And it's riveting. Blair is going to want a thing next week. I promise. And whatever it is, she will almost get it. And then Serena will get it instead with no effort, and they will both want to die as a result. And if you've never been on one side of that relationship at one time, and on the other side of that relationship at another time, what have you been doing instead of having friends? Because you always feel one way or the other, and you have to recognize how gross it makes you feel to be on either side of that equation, because it's nobody's fault. It's just how it happens. There's a totem pole, and you're on it, and there's always somebody above you, and always somebody beneath you. And you have to be kind to them, both, or else you're in an uncomfortable position. And learning this is how we got ourselves under control. And at points, actually, Jacob Clifton starts talking about this as a metaphor for class and the complexities of class and how unhappy the rich kids are, and also the kind of grace that somebody like Dan lacks or sometimes occasionally shows in being able to show sympathy or empathy for these rich kids. Absolutely. No, I think that's a really beautiful passage and, and really well done. And I think I actually have a, a bridge back to some other things we were talking about um, that you, you know you can do it with, with, with uh, which is that I think I remember that episode pretty clearly. And one of the things that strikes me about this in a lot of instances is that the issue is there's no explaining um, your way out of that situation because Blair has made up her mind and the trust has already been ruined. And so there's a presumption that honest communication isn't possible anymore because it's now motivated because the state of affairs is just better for the other person. And I think that's one of the ways in which reputation of upholding commitments matters because it makes people trust your general statements without assuming that they're motivated reasoning because it's assumed that your motivation to be truthful is there because you want to keep your reputation and your ability to keep communicating with people. Yeah. Hmm. Can you say more about that? 
Yeah. So, you know, in I've been in a lot of scenarios, right, where there's various levels of management. And often what you'll see is there's one person who's kind of charismatic, but they've totally blown their reputation. Because what happened is they've made too many promises that even if they haven't totally broken them, they've weaseled their way out of them in ways that are dissatisfying to the people who they were supposed to keep promises to. And so people just, you know, will listen to them if they have to, but they won't have an honest conversation with them because there's this assumption that the other person can't be bound. And that's like the most important thing about commitments. It reminds me of something that you said a while ago, which is um, something like there are always stakes and the automatic, you know, the, the default stake is reputation. Um, and yeah. I feel like commitments, whatever else is on the table, reputation is what's at stake. And without reputation, without mutually recognizing each other's reputation for, you know, the ability to uphold commitments and communicate truthfully, you can't, you're not willing to communicate at all. And for a human who mostly wants social things, in my view, even if you want something material, it's usually for social reasons, in my view, um, that is the ultimate punishment, right? To not be able to control your interactions. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think <laughs> there's a, a couple of, I mean, I think you're right that uh, a lot of what we want grounds out in social stuff. Um, there's a great line. I was rereading uh, C.S. Lewis's Inner Ring essay, um, which is, you know, about a lot of these dynamic social games and the ways that people signal belonging to an inner group. Um, but he, he talks a little, he says, you know, Freud would have it that all this kind of social stuff is the result of, of sexuality, but, but I can't help but wonder if it's the opposite. Mm. Um, many, many a young girl has lost her virginity um, out of a desire um, because she has heard all her friends have experienced it and she wishes to be on the inside and in the know and uh, initiated, so to speak. Um, I, uh, on the, on the other topics, I mean, I think, I think you're right about this. Human beings can play by spirit. We've talked about spirit and letter before in the context of games. And I think an important thing to remember is that humans are good at playing by spirit and not just that, but they play by default through spirit. And so, um, for instance, like, uh, this question about weaseling your way out. You can win on technicalities in a pu public court all you want, um, but in the social world, you'll always lose by technicalities. Um, you know, there's and and it kind of also reminds me of of the thought that I keep having that re is recurring, which is that kind of intent doesn't matter in social games. Um, like the the only reality that exists for your purposes in terms of um, your social reality is how others perceive you to some extent, and so you can be perfectly in the right. And yet, if people feel like they've wronged you, then you might as well have wronged them in terms of your own social future. Um, Agreed. There's a lot there. I want to point out one thing, which this is this is just essentially an extension of your idea, which is, I think there's a reason why people automatically reason by spirit. And I don't think it's because they're good. I don't think it's because um, uh, it makes more sense or there's some intrinsic reason. Rather, I think this is information theoretic. I think this is a coordination problem. I think the mm -hmm. idea of reasoning by letter would require us to flesh out the system so much. I don't think that's even possible mm -hmm. for, you know, 10,000 scientists who are experts at thinking about formal systems to do. And mm -hmm. so reasoning fuzzily by, well, 
deciding the boundaries will be hard. So let's stick away from the boundaries and actually try to aim for the center because everybody more or less agrees on a general space where the center is, um, is simply much easier, especially for an emerging game that has a lot of players. Yeah. I think one downside, I mean, I think that picture is mostly upside over a letter system, but I think one downside to that system is that um, making unconventional moves that um, fulfill basic requirements, but in an unrecognized way, those things are not in the center, which means they're oftentimes not recognized. Um, the other thing I want to, I mean, I, I want to come back to this binding thing because it's most pertinent to the actual topic of our podcast. Um, and I guess one question on my mind is whether all the things we call commitments really are commitments and whether commitments as we're talking to, about them require staking. Mm. And so one informal way that we use commitments is you commit to yourself. You say, I am going to do X. And maybe there's like some, you know, strongly felt phenomenology there. But I guess maybe I wonder if there's no consequence to not fulfilling X, whether you are in fact committed, whether staking or binding, or in some way essentially saying, if I don't X, then conditionally bad thing Y will happen. Um, if that isn't present, then are you really committing? Is there really a commitment mechanism? Right. No, I think this is a really important point. Um, I'm building up two things. One, like, you know, there's obviously the, the sovereign is that who makes the, the person who makes the exception. And I think there you see one of the reasons why self-regulation is hard. Because essentially anytime you don't finish a commitment, like even if you punish yourself in a certain way, you already decided the punishment. And so it's a very difficult problem because it's almost infinitely reflexive in a sense because you're continually having this relationship with yourself and it's not clear how to, even if you have an idea of the steady state you want to get to, which maybe you don't, um, but even if you do, I think it's very difficult to know how to do that because the problem influences itself with every action. Um, and it reminds me of this um, uh, Daniel Dennett uh, little thing. I, I'll just paraphrase it here. It's from, but it's from the book uh, Elbow Room. Um, and he says, if I'm in bed and I tell myself, get out of bed, and then I don't, what's going on? And I think this is very, you know, it's, it's very much what you're saying that like, if you don't stake anything to your relationship with yourself in a given instance, it doesn't really have any power, even though we generally think of our will as a pure execution, but it's not. And I think the reason why it's not is exactly what you're saying, which is commitments aren't infinite. They don't just say, oh, if this is broken, all hell breaks loose. There's, they have stakes. They're staked on, staked on something real that, A, if, that's not abide, if you don't abide by that later, then it becomes less real and the trust of commitment is, is, is not good. And B, if you don't decide on the right stakes to make the power dynamic work, then people don't. And that's why people, you know, steal books from the library and never return them because the library isn't going to come after them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think one big problem in a lot of systems is that we don't have good regulation for commitments. And I think probably the big like memory is probably one of the biggest things that we have to fight in terms of just people forget commitments that are made. Um, there's only so much you can keep in your cash. And if um, commitments are over a long period of time, usually most people forget and you actually don't get penalized. And obviously this basically runs the political sphere. Um, basically no politician keeps basically none of the promises they make. Um, and yet there seems to be no punishment for it. I mean, I've, uh, I, I don't need to go on a, a Trump Trump is the bogeyman spiel, 
but Trump didn't keep any of his promises and he got the same amount of votes. It, it doesn't matter. Um, the, the make, keeping your commitments um, d- don't really seem to affect your re-election chances. And so you obviously end up with a system in which um, politicians are naturally incentivized and indeed selected actively for the commitments they make on the campaign trail uh, in a way that has no tethering to their actual intent. And obviously this selects for bullshitters first and foremost. Agreed. And I think there's two elements to that. I think one is the kind of, you know, um, uh, what's the new thing? I want to say SSC, but what is it? Uh, Astro Codex 10. 10. Yeah. Um, uh, but it is from SSC originally uh, because it's, it's from an SSC essay uh, of um, the issue, right, is this kind of double binding um, where no one person can change the system. Because imagine a politician who agreed to abide by their commitments. I don't think it would raise their election chances for next year and I or next round, right? And I think they would be making so many people in their world unhappy that, you know, even if someone does this and we say it's the right thing, I just think that they would, you know, be, uh, they wouldn't even get to, you know, a place where you and I would know about them. They'd still be stuck at mayor level politics and would have lost. <laughs> um, and so I think that's very difficult. Um, and I it's, think, it's, oh, no, go, go, go. It's just funny. I mean, there are commitments politicians make that mm. they do actually keep. Um, sure. Probably those look like to special interest groups and, and people with power who actually will hold them accountable personally. No, absolutely. But, but continue. Sorry. No, I think that's exactly actually that helps me with my secondary point, which is I think the point is that commitments, right? There are not rules written in a universal programming language. There are two people. And I think the question is, you know, who is a politician making commitments towards and how is that going to be interpreted? And exactly like what you're saying, when those commitments are to groups that are going to keep them bound, A, they're more careful and B, they keep them. And so I think the question becomes not why don't politicians keep their commitments? It's what are the words they're saying that look like general commitments actually committing to in this game that they're playing, which is not like you and I having a conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So it's been 40 minutes. Um, I think it, I, we've actually gone over a ton of ground. So I think yeah. we should start trying to wrap it up. Is there, is there anything else that uh, you wanted to touch on before we, we do? Hmm. Mm. I mean, you know, there are so many loose ends. I'll maybe I'll throw out like possible things that in future episodes we can talk on about. Go and for I think, it. I think I don't know if other people are as interested in this, um, but I'm really interested in fam- familial commitments because I am, um, there are all these weird intergenerational dynamics and these are kind of obligations that aren't really chosen. They're inherited, um, which is a very special kind of commitment. There aren't many kinds of commitments that um, you don't voluntarily enter. Um, even if that you know voluntary entering is at an unconscious level or an implicit level. Um, and I think it would also be, you know, interesting at some point to, um, I don't know, I guess we've gone over, we've gone over romantic stuff. We've gone over shared social plans. We've gone over uh, public pledges. Uh, I want to go over customer relationships. Power. Okay. Let's hear it. I, let's hear customer oh, relationships. Let's hear Okay. Right now, let's go. Okay. So I think that what's interesting about customer relationships is that um, essentially the customer usually needs something from someone. But they are construed as, so they basically, I think they individually have significant power over the kind of local scale. 
but they don't have significant power over like what a company does in general or like something that becomes company policy that they can't change mm. really. But mm -hmm. emergently, they also have control over that because if all of the customers go to somewhere else, then you're totally screwed. And so I think it's actually, um, there's a lot of asymmetries in the customer relationship that like in a friendship relationship, usually even if there is some level of role behavior, things kind of uh, go both ways. And, you know, romantic relationships, they have some level of roles and, you know, like uh, gender roles still exist in a lot of um, relationships and stuff like that. I mean, I, I already always exist and just to different levels. Um, but I still think there's a lot of things that go both ways where I would say customer relationships are intrinsically very asymmetric. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's some interesting bits in Irvin Goffing actually about ambassadors' ability to make commitments on behalf of their state. I guess in, in kind of pre-modern European states, the norm was actually that if an, an official ambassador made a commitment on behalf of your country, mm. that was considered binding. They had full mm. authority to make it, and they were very carefully briefed on what you know commitments they could and couldn't make. Sure. And, um, and that actually changes with World War One because the U.S. has a constitution that says, you know, you can't make treaties um, without congressional approval. And so... Um, yeah, changes changes the norms um, because if everyone's not going to abide by it. Um, the last thing I'll say really quick is I have heard from people who um, work have, have worked as researchers in sales-driven organizations that is a universal rule that salespeople always overpromise what the uh, the research team can deliver. Uh, I think that's true. the bane of researchers that you know their their salesmen hype up all the shit that they can do and then they're like, "There's no way I can implement this." I think that's true, and I think one of the reasons for that, though, having you know, I I haven't been in an organization that has sales, but I have been involved in um trying to uh, get grants and trying to keep grants. And what I will say is, I think it's interesting because I think that's true. And I think it's a fault on both ends, though, because I think also there's a very specific interpretation most researchers give to a, a given promise that the salesperson isn't really giving, right? And they, he knows that their audience, they or they know that their audience um, isn't isn't viewing it in this technical sense. But that researchers are like, well, but it would never generalize to this crazy situation that doesn't matter and no one cares about. Like, and you can just special case or say never apply it here ever. Um, and so I think it does go both ways. But I think there's this interesting thing where there are, you know, I, I don't want to say miscommunication. It is miscommunication, but people use miscommunication in this weird good faith way of like, oh, if we just understood each other. But no, it's the fact that people use language in various levels of rigor depending on what they tend to think about most. Um, and depending on how bound binding their things are and between researchers, if you make a claim and it's too strong often, then you lose a lot of reputation for being too loose and no one can trust your data. Right. And so I think there's this, you know, cultural shift between those two things. And, and that's also worth talking about at some point. Well, given, um, how many researchers have been caught red handed, just completely fabricating things, um, and <laughs> imagine or managed to, uh, get in top journals still, I, uh, Open question how much that stuff does bite you, but we should probably call this a wrap. That was excellent. Um, uh, I'm Crispy Chicken, and just remember, if you want to understand people, you better watch Gossip Girl. <laughs> I'll plus one that. <laughs>